Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the Wild Isle podcast. Today, I've got a solo episode, just being me. I'm going to be uh, reading and discussing an essay that I've written called There Is No Such Thing As Civil Rights. Uh, it'll be a spicy one, but before I get into it, I've got to show my stuff. So if you're listening out there and you're a lover of weird fantasy fiction, check out my novel, Wand Smoke Broken. Uh, following the blind drug dealing troglodyte Conti and his adopted daughter and seer broken as they traverse the unfair uh, small town of South, get involved in occult magic and eventually seeing the evils uh, present there decide, well, maybe this isn't the greatest idea. Ended up being kind of little small town heroes. It's a fun story. I enjoyed writing that quite a lot. Also, I'm available for hire as an editor. If you've got a manuscript, fiction, nonfiction, essays, whatever, um, shoot me an email through my contact form on my website, wildislelit.com, and I can help you uh, shape it up. And if you want to pay all the way up for developmental editing, I give very, very intensive, uh, let's say, I don't want to call it advice, things that I had learned, uh, both from the writing process myself and then going to grad school. So uh, let me impart my wisdom onto you insofar as wisdom I have. Uh, lastly, if you're a wheeling local, uh, make sure in January, beginning of January, I'm going to start a, uh, let's say, philosophy of writing lecture series. It's absolutely free. I'm starting this out at the Ohio County Public Library. I really hope that you attend. I'm going to have a lot of fun with this. Uh, I'm going to sneak philosophy into writing lectures. So not only will you learn how to write and therefore read better, and you know that you need to learn that, you know that everyone's uh, illiterate nowadays, so you can definitely benefit, but also you'll Let's say get a little bit of basic philosophical grounding so you won't be tricked by all of the uh, charlatans and word sorcerers or word, you know, dark word wizards that you see everywhere and always, uh, you know, on the media, your, you know, friends who take advantage of you, they're not really friends. So come down to lecture at Ohio County Public Library. It starts on January 3rd at 5.30 to 6.30. It runs weekly for five weeks, and I'll have a part two um, scheduled sometime soon. All right, with that being said, uh, we're going to get into this essay today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the essay and then stop to comment where I think is uh, relevant. I had a lot of fun writing this. I got to remember just how evil uh, Rousseau's social contract is, and I can see why. I think it was like the elders or council in Geneva like ran him out of the country when he presented this to them. Uh, and you'll also see how eminently the only word I can think of is reasonable John Locke is in his second treaties of government. And I imagine um, for the rest of his writings, I haven't gotten through them yet, but it's uh, particularly for Americans uh, and perhaps also for the Brits out there. It's just common sense is the best way I could put it, uh, but let's not dally too long. So this is part, uh, rather the first in a series. I think I'm going to do more of these. Of these. There is no such thing as uh, essentially debunking, if you will, let's say ill-defined and ill-conceived notions is the best way that I could put it. In this case, it's civil rights. So there are no such things as civil rights. The entire phrase is, at best, simultaneously an ill-conception and a misnomer. At worst, 
and what I believe to be more likely among those inflamed souls with wits enough to read whole sentences, the very notion of civil rights is a linguistic trick, a bit of word wizardry, bewitchment with which pseudo-intellectual malcontents bait the herd into frenzied stampedes, like a piece of opiate fruit, sweet-scented, yet inside, rotten. In pursuit of determining the truth of such a contentious thesis, I make reference to the two major Western influences on our current conception of rights. They are the English philosopher John Locke and the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Respectively, I will draw out their notions of rights from their most famous works, Locke's Second Treatise of Government and Rousseau's The Social Contract. These two, it is believed, are in large part responsible for spurring two very different Enlightenment revolutions, Locke, the American, and Rousseau, the French, disparate revolutions that consequently produce socially and politically disparate nations, each with its own conception of equality, justice, and, most relevant here, rights. That's the introduction to the essay. And uh, before I go on, I, I'd like to make a few few comments here. So pseudo-intellectual malcontents, right? Uh, writing this essay, I very much, um, particularly when it got down into Rousseau's uh, con- conception of civil rights, I uh, was reminded of when I read through Foucault. And you see this often with particularly what I call left-wing postmodernism, right? So uh, if you haven't heard me describe this before, the difference between right-wing and left-wing postmodernism uh, is how they handle the uh, essentially what Kant called the, the noumena, right? So you've got the phenomena and the noumenal. The phenomena is our experience of the world, uh, and the noumenal is as it, the world as it is outside of our experience, okay? Um, so you imagine you've got a table. I can see the table. I can touch the table. Maybe I can smell and taste the table. Uh, I can feel it. That's my experience of it, but that's all mediated through uh, my, you know, physical body, my nervous system, uh, my mind as an emergent property of my brain, which we, you know, we don't understand exactly, you know, well at all. So um, the noumenal is the table as it is. Now, uh, the right-wing postmodern view isn't that there isn't a table or that there isn't a thing there. It's just that you can't have any real knowledge. You cannot, ha- you cannot have gnosis of the table, gnosis spelled with a G. The left-wing view is a little different. The left-wing view is something like, well, I can't have perfect knowledge of this table. In fact, I have no idea how accurate my knowledge really is because I'm eternally trapped inside my perception, like someone trapped inside the matrix. I don't know how real any of it is. And I've got all these other people and they each have their own perceptions. And with, because we can't determine amongst ourselves which one is the valid one. We just consider them all valid equally, and therefore there is no table. There is only the perception of the table, right? It is the, uh, let's say, assumption, because both sides are making an assumption here, that there is no world outside of perception, that there is only phenomena and, uh, let's say, not noumena. Now, this actually transforms uh, those other concepts I mentioned, equality, justice, rights, okay? So what those words end up meaning, we'll see this as they get into the essay, changes depending on whether you think there is a world out there. And 
it, it I mean, it changes dramatically. So um, let's look at the concept of uh, equality, right? So if the world is as it is, there are immutable aspects to the world. And so therefore, there uh, are going to be insofar as the world is inequitable, inequities, and those are going to not be under our control. So what equality becomes is the uh, withdrawal of arbitrary uh, barriers put in the way. Like if, if I'm, you know, say we all be treated equally under the law, we're all playing by the same rules. Now, that doesn't mean we all start at the same place because, uh, let's say, nature or if your religious God dictates outside of our control, where you start, like you're born into a time and a place to a particular set of circumstances that are different than other people's and therefore are not equal. Uh, and all we can do is treat everyone equally, because to try to treat people uh, differently is actually inevitably just going to introduce more arbitrary differences in uh, because there are aspects of the world that we can't control and uh, really we can't predict. Uh, therefore, what is just becomes uh, different in that case, and then rights are then produced from your conception of of justice. Um, if you, that's the kind of uh, what I would call the the Lockean or the right wing view. The left wing view will see ends up reducing everything down to power, like what you can do. So if there is no fundamental reality, right underneath, there's just our experiences then I could just keep conjuring the experiences until the uh, power balance comes out to be equal if I value equality in that sense. Therefore, justice becomes equality and a kind of perfect equality where no one has more power than another person. Um, and then therefore, what rights you have uh, are what serve that justice that is perfect equality. And why that becomes evil You'll see here in a little bit, but let's get into it. Defining our terms. Now, uh, bear with me because this this drags on a little bit. What is a right? That is the question and contention under discussion. But before it can be, mm, a little typo here, can, it can be answered, you must understand how a thing is defined. A definition is our linguistic encapsulation of a concept covering and retaining as much as possible what is intended and excluding as much as possible as is not intended. E.g., for example, when I say table, I mean to communicate the concept of an elevated surface on which to rest objects and not to communicate the concept of a chair, an elevated surface on which to sit. Now a new question emerges. What is a concept? A concept is a mental model of a thing in itself, i.e., or in essence, uh, it doesn't mean that, but I like to say in essence, uh, that which is objective. In other words, a concept is an abstract tool by which we subjective human beings navigate the objective world. It is a phenomenological map of the ineffable noumena. And you should kind of understand what that means by what I was talking about earlier, a phenomenological map, uh, our experiential map of the thing that we move around, it's a universe that fundamentally we do not know. As a tool, concepts serve a purpose. A better or worse conceptualization, therefore, is determined via its utility in said navigation. That is, in the conception's reliability to predict the outcomes of causal relationships, i.e., 
a good concept seems to correspond better to empirical facts than competing concepts do. Okay, so we'll get into it. I don't want to interrupt myself here. Definitions are how we think about and communicate our concepts. Good definitions, then, according highly with their conceptions. Uh, sorry, according. I'll read that again. Definitions are how we think about and communicate our concepts. Good definitions, then, accord highly with their conceptions, which in turn ought to accord highly with what is in fact. Does it feel as if I have strayed far in a field from our topic of discussion? Stay the course, friends, for stray I haven't. Right. This is this is actually quite necessary. So I'm laying out here, and I'm not going to do this in every essay um, since I've done it here. But how we determine whether definitions are good definitions or whether conceptions are good conceptions, because if you think that there is in fact truth out there, then they immediately do not become equal. Some are going to be more accurate than others to that reality, and the only way we have to measure that is let's say, our success in navigating the uh, the world as it presents itself to us phenomenologically. We just don't have access to it pneumologically, so this is as good as we have, right? This has all been to establish that a good definition has something at the bottom of it, right? It refers to the truth. It refers to a thing that exists separate to mere conception, which is what makes it useful. A bad definition, failing to fulfill its utility, inevitably requires modification or replacement, e.g. if truth is to be defined as one person's perception of the truth. Then now we need a new word to describe that which exists outside of a perceiver's perception, to which the word truth formally referred. So here, if you didn't get the importance of that little bit there in the, uh, well, you can't see it, but it's in the parentheses, one way you know whether you are, let's say, modifying or um, defining, or modifying a definition or coming up with a definition that is correct is whether or not, let's say, if you change a definition, you've got true, right? So true for most of the time uh, has, has been like this kind of presumption that uh, the phenomenological is what is. So like get rid of this idea about that which exists outside of perception. And people would see an object as like, well, clearly I can see the table. So the table is there. Therefore, it's, it is in fact true, right? Um, now, if I suddenly say, well, what truth is, is dependent upon each person. So if you can see the table, the table is there. It's true. That statement is true to you, but not true to the blind man who can't see it, who doesn't interact with it. Right now I've moved the definition of truth. I've, I've changed it. But the problem is there's still utility in understanding whether the tra table is actually there, whether or not you're going to trip on it or be able to put something on it, right? Or sit at it to eat. Um, we need, and we now need a new word. Uh, well, it depends. I'll, I'll say that here in a second. But uh, for the most part, if we're being honest, you now need a new word to serve the utility that tr the word truth just served. And you'll notice that if you keep playing that game, um, you have to keep reinventing new words. Uh, and if you do, what that means is that the way that you're using the word is uh, malformed, right? You're uh, necessarily excluding things that 
you need to include out of utility as a human being, and you're including things that actually are inhibiting uh, the function of that utility. Now, you might want to do this if you are, let's say, a clever liar, a word sorcerer, as I've come to call them. You might do this on purpose, right? And why would you do this on purpose? Well, truth, I use that as a particular example because people do use this with the concept of truth, right? So if I extend truth out from the objective, from out from the noumenal into the phenomenological, into the subjective, what I've done is conflated the two. Um, and if I conflated the two, and let's say I don't even actually really believe in the, uh, the numeral, or at the very least, I gain power by convincing other people that at least for a time, you know, during the conversation that the, the numina is not in fact, then what I do is I use the same word, and I do a bit of double speech. So I can use the word true to mean that which is objective, but then I can use the word true to mean that which is subjective. And once I've established that in somebody else's head by getting them to use the same words that I'm using in the ways that I'm using them, I can get that person to, to verbally agree to things that they don't actually agree with. But the problem is for most people, right, if you say the thing aloud, that's good enough to affect your thoughts. Most people are not capable of writing their thoughts out in a coherent manner because their thoughts are really gray. They're gray think, right? Like dreams. They make sense of them in their heads, uh, but they don't in fact make any sense. The holes are invisible to them until they go to try and write them out, which is why you know most people, if you go to try and write an essay, you find out really quickly that, oh, your natural innate way of thinking is utterly corrupt. Right, it, it's utterly useless because it's not useless. Right, you can obviously navigate the world, but it's not coherent. Um, and someone who wants to trick you will do this to you. Right, they'll say something like "your truth," which is an oxymoron, because the definition of truth refers to that which does not belong to you. Right, but if I use it that way, and I say, "Well, what I mean is," now I've, I've uh, included ideas into the definition of truth. Now, why is that relevant to our conversation here about rights? Well, we'll see, right? We'll see. Let's go on. Now, with all that groundwork laid, we can begin to define right. We accomplish this by asking ourselves, what concept do we mean to encapsulate? To understand that, we look to the utility of the word. When do we refer to rights? We do so when there is a dispute or potential dispute of rightness, correctness, or justice. He who has the right of inheritance is justified in seizing, retaining, and protecting that which has been bequeathed to him. He who has the right of way is correct in his traffic-related actions and thereby not responsible for the damage of a vehicular collision, the one without the right of way being in error. The right to self-defense or the defense of others is to say that the violent acts of the defending party are justified. When we describe the right to free speech and expression, we are describing the moral acceptability of one exercising his natural powers to speak and the moral violation of preventing that person from using what is naturally his own property, in this case, his body, his pen and paper, his typewriter, etc. In all these examples, and in the groundwork here laid of establishing good definitions, there is a presumed objective standard to which to compare. There is an assumption that some actions are morally right and others wrong, 
From thence comes the concept that some actions are justified while some are not. A few readers may here protest, wielding what I call the postmodern problem, the accurate observation that the noumena, by definition, is not knowable and therefore may in fact not even exist. To this I say that bullets care not for any individual's interpretation. If you disagree, then stand before me and face away. And the forty four caliber hollow point fired for my uh, Smith & Wesson Model 29 will, according to you, not devastate your brain, because you will neither see it nor hear it. The uh, bullet will be traveling faster than sound. Of course, you don't believe this, my hypothetical word sorcerer. And hopefully no man who has stayed this course will fall for your word sorcery ever again. Beginning back to our defining of right. It is clear we are trying to refer to something which resolves disputes in a way which accords with the objective truth. In other times and places, what is named God or nature, or both interchangeably, whatever the term, that is, which is, being the standard. Herein enter Locke and Rousseau. Okay, so now we're actually going to get into the definition of rights. Before I move on, I want to make sure we understood what I just did there, right? So um, we understand that a definition, a good definition corresponds to something that in, in fact is, unless we're going to reduce this down to power games and manipulation, where I'm just trying to trick you, right? That was the whole thing about truth. When we're, we're doing that, we're asking, what the hell are we using the word for? Like, what does the word do? You know, the, we uh, as human beings have a teleology, and the words we come come up with do as well. They have a purpose, a function, and we just ask, well, when we're trying to use the word right, what purpose are we serving? And we're trying to figure out who is correct in this dispute. Correct, like, they, like there's someone who's in the right and someone who's in the wrong. Now, sometimes both people are in the wrong. And sometimes both people are partially in the right, but the idea that there is a right that they can be and there is a right that they can stray from is fundamental to how we're going to define what what rights are. And we have to understand that moving on. Okay, so what is a right? As opposed to civil rights, though that turn comes about much later, John Locke in his Second Treatise of Government goes about establishing what he called, and is still named today in America and elsewhere, natural rights. Now, quoting from Locke, To understand political power right, and to derive it from its original, we must consider what state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit, within the bounds of the law of nature without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. But though this be a state of liberty, yet it is not a state of license. The man in that state have an uncontrollable liberty to dispose of his person or possessions, yet he has not uh, the liberty to destroy himself or so much as any creature in his possession, but where some nobler use than its bare preservation calls for it. The state of nature has a law of nature to govern it, which obliges everyone, and reason, which is that law, teaches all mankind, who will but consult it, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. 
So I'm going to kind of cover what Locke is is framing out here. So um, you could think Locke being a kind of, um, what's the word, deistic Christian, sees the world as God made it. So like God and nature here kind of become interchangeable, like I mentioned before. It doesn't really matter, uh, you know, which view you take. But by our nature, by our being, um, we are in possession of certain abilities, right? Um, and it just so happens that by nature, we are the unique masters of volition. And I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit, right? So uh, I am the one in control of my body. I could decide what I do with it naturally. Now, someone could come up and force me to do something by threatening my being. Um, but that person requires use of force and coercion, right? Um, it is a stripping of volition. I'm the only person with actually that volition. Now, if someone asks me to do something, I can agree to do it and wield my volition in that way. But that's part of nature. Like man has that in his nature. Uh, man also has reason, right? And why is this relevant? Well, in the game of negotiation, when two people come with reason, then they can appeal to a kind of uh, you know, third party judge that is that which is reasonable. Okay, so there's the again, we hit this idea, um, fundamentally a, a right wing idea that there is an objective standard by which to measure. Um, I'm sure Locke would consider this kind of like the order established onto the universe by God, something like that. But we don't even need to think of it that way. Uh, the way that I think of it is I can be reasonable with you. And if I can't reason with you, that forces me into a position where either I have to avoid you, um, I have to go to war with you, I have to you know, use violence and force, or I have to be deceptive and manipulative. And those are my only you know, uh, external three options. But we as human beings are in possession to some degree perhaps less than we like to believe, but we are in, in possession to some degree with reason. And so let's say that is what he is appealing to, which accords with the nature of human beings, which accords with nature itself, or like the order of God, something like that. That's what he's predicating his rights on. So the right is a description of that those capacities, native and natural to human beings. Right, and from there, Locke goes on at great length to extrapolate uh, from these first principles rights to self-defense and rights to acquire and maintain property. We've got a slew of um, uh, citations, but I didn't want to go on and on and on within the essay. Um, if you want, you can look at the page numbers or just read the second treatise. It's not very long, and you'll see it itself. Uh, in short, you because you own yourself and you're the only one with the the right, remember, the correctness, the justice of uh, being in, in voluntary control of your body when someone infringes upon that, that puts you in the right to defend it, right, to preserve yourself because that person is naturally wrong for infringing upon you. Um, and when you mix it with property rights, right, when you mix your labor with something that is unowned, um, what Locke calls owned in common, right? So you go out into a forest, pick some acorns. When you pick the acorns, you've now mixed your labor. You've taken your time and energy and effort and, and made the acorns into a useful state in your collection. Then they're your acorns now because they weren't somebody else's. Um, it gets a little more complex when he starts talking about land and that, but that's the basic idea of property rights. You are your property. 
right? Um, and you can make other things your property when you bring them out of the commons and into your possessions or mixing your labor with them. Um, anyway, so that's property rights. However, this brief introduction to his definition is sufficient to understand what is meant when we say to this day the term natural rights. Natural rights are those liberties we are born into. That is to say, they are those freedoms intrinsic to our being and wills. They are properties of us bestowed by nature or God, as sometimes Locke describes it. Either way, we are describing what is often called free will, which I call embodied will. We are naturally biologically, the exclusive masters of our bodies and minds to the degree that each of us is considered a united being, but we won't delve into ego consciousness and its relationship to the personal and collective unconscious here. As such exclusive, uh, basically, th there's an argument that we are, when we say we, we're talking about our, our conscious efforts, and there's a lot of unconscious instinctive action going on because we're animals. Um, but that's going to complicate things, and we don't really need to think about it right now. So we're going to set that aside. As such exclusive masters, we each possess the sole ability to voluntarily dispose of our time, effort, and property, e.g. our bodies, as we will. Do not miss the word voluntarily, because it is that key component which establishes by the same nature or God that it is violation to natural law that men infringe upon one another's volition kind of described that before. In short, we naturally own ourselves and thereby come upon the natural rights of man to do what he will that does not violate the natural rights of other men. Voluntarism is at the heart of this, and it is upon this concept of voluntarism which principles such as the libertarian non-aggression principle are founded. Uh, I picked that one just because I was familiar with it. Uh, there are other liberal principles founded on, on this, obviously, um, because it's really the foundation of the uh, American Constitution and the idea of a just governance, uh, which I have some contentions with the idea that government is justified, um, but I'm not going to argue those here. We'll move on. Rejection here there, uh, requires a rejection of a voluntarism as a reality. It is to say that voluntarism is a bunk concept. To him who takes that route, I ask if there is really no difference between theft and repossession, between murder and self-defense, between consensual sex and rape, because to abolish voluntarism as a concept is to erase the border between most moral concepts on which they are founded, as it happens, on Lockean natural rights. This is a point worth uh, settling on, right? Because this kind of shows the power of the concept of natural rights and the definition of natural rights. When you get rid of um, the component parts of it, if you try to get rid of the concept of natural rights, what you end up doing is erasing any uh, any ability to argue from ought. We'll see this with Rousseau too, because Rousseau acknowledges natural rights in a sense. Because you can't you can't even begin to make ought arguments. Like what difference is there between uh, let's say uh murder and self-defense or consensual sex and rape if let's say, well, um you're a what I call a rationalist materialist um and or or maybe rationalist empiricist uh 
no, materialist is better than empiricist, I think. And so you say, well, voluntarism is just an abstraction. It's like, well, what the hell does that mean, just an abstraction, right? Because that abstraction seems to be correspondent or in accordance with something that's real, because we know that, um, let's say, murder and self-defense do not have the same effects in the real world. They are different. Repossession and theft are not the same to the beings involved. Consexual se sex and rape do not have the same effects on a physiological level, right? They are not the same thing. Now, voluntarism is our abstract tool of understanding the neurological world and the actual nature of the thing. And so, yeah, voluntarism is our shadow on the wall, but we can only navigate based on shadows on the wall. We do not have uh, gnosis into some realm of the forms um, like Plato imagined. So Plato's close, but he's not quite right in his conception of things. So I'm not at all impressed by that dismissal because it just undoes uh, all grounding unless, of course, you don't mind the fact that uh, your own ideas are incoherent. So this is like the utility of postmodernism. It's like, well, uh, left, particularly left-wing postmodernism, well, if there isn't any real reality, as long as my words can produce the effects that I want, then what do I care if they're coherent, right? Because that's what that idea is. So when someone tries to undo this concept of locking in natural rights, what they're trying to do is just get one over on you. It's just a reduction to power. And we're going to see that here soon. So that is Locke's assessment of it. What of Rousseau? In the social contract, he describes the bestowal of civil rights, as we now name them, via the social construction of the sovereign, a kind of disembodied general will. Uh, really, the sovereign is it's, it's the idea that from the general will of the, of the body politic, you can produce a kind of disembodied god, is really what this is. Um, so we're quoting now from Rousseau, and I swear to just, just listen. Just listen to what Rousseau says, and think about it. Some of it's going to sound reasonable for like literally half a sentence, and then, and then we'll see. Each of us puts his person and all his power in common under the supreme direction of the general will, and in our corporate capacity, we receive each member as an indivisible part of the whole. If the state is a moral person whose life is in the union of its members, and if the most important of its cares, uh, it the care of, for sorry, and the most important of its cares, it the care for its own preservation, it must have a universal and compelling force in order to move and dispose each part as it be most advantageous to the whole. As nature gives each man absolute power over all of his members. The social compact gives the body politic absolute power over all of its members also. And it is uh, this power which, under the direction of the general will, bears, as I have said, the name of sovereignty. But besides the public person, we have to consider the private persons composing it, whose life and liberty are naturally independent of it. We are bound then to distinguish clearly between the respective rights of the citizens and the sovereign. And at this point, you're thinking, oh, okay. You know, when he started saying, okay, supreme power over its members, like they're just members of the body that it can control. That sounds kind of spooky, but we're going to delineate between the rights of the citizens and the sovereign, right? Right. Okay. Each man alienates, I admit, by the social compact, only such part of his powers, goods, and liberties as is important for the community to control. Okay, that sounds so reasonable, right? Semicolon. 
but it must also be granted that the sovereign is sole judge of what is important. Which just completely that that second clause uh, just just destroys any uh, would say limits to the power of this disembodied imagined God, right? The sovereign. Now all of a sudden, what he's saying is, well, you know, you have rights unless the sovereign thinks that it's important that you don't, and then you don't. It's like what? What, is, what does that even mean? Furthermore, uh, quoting onward, right? So I'll tell you what it means. So. Uh, so it must be granted that the sovereign is a sole judge of what is important. Pages later, he says, Furthermore, the citizen is no longer the judge of the dangers to which the law desires, not requires, desires him to expose himself. And when the prince says to him, It is expedient for the state that you should die, he ought to die. Because it is only on that condition that he has been living in security up to the present, and because his life is no longer a mere bounty of nature, but a gift made conditionally by the state. A gift made conditionally by the state. Let that sink in. Yes, you read that right. The, cons the concept of civil rights is that of a guarantee by the state or whatever authority is fulfilling that role. In other words, civil rights are the description of what is socially constructed to be so, not what is intrinsic to any person. Okay, so we're not talking about something that is a natural property imbued to you by your nature, by your biology, if you're religious, by God, no, none of that. What we're saying is civil, uh, civil rights are things guaranteed to you by the artificial God that is the state. Okay, that's what that's what Rousseau is getting at, and that's what it to this day this day it means. The idea is that the authority, the state or sovereign, Rousseau uses different names depending on whether the entity is in action or at rest. This is basically the same thing. Is like the mind, and that the individuals that uh, make it up are like the body. This constructed mind determines, determines the rights of men, much like God or nature does in the Lockean concept of rights. And it gains this power via the alienation of all natural rights by the members of the body politic. Those are the people, by the way. When I say the body politic, that's all the people of that society, right? So what, what Rousseau is saying is like, okay, well, they all surrender all of their natural rights. So he's kind of acknowledging that, okay, like, well, you do have rights as a natural being, and we're going to to have civil rights. What you do is you surrender those rights, uh, and insofar as you surrender them, you now create this godlike structure, the sovereign, right? Basically viewing the state as a, as a kind of Tower of Babel is really what this is, this is, okay? And so now, in the same way that nature imbued upon you certain rights intrinsic to your person— you give all those up, and now the state is going to redistribute the rights as it sees fit. Um, uh, that it does, and not even as it, yeah, as it sees fit is the best way. Because remember, it's as it desires, not requires, desires. Okay, so given that which rights are to be stripped and which to be bestowed are mutable and arbitrary in accord with the will of the sovereign. What civil rights actually encapsulates, so like the word civil rights actually encapsulates, is a potential range of uh, contingent states of, uh, sorry, is a potential range 
of contingent states of affair. Unlike natural rights, civil rights don't describe a thing, but instead describe whatever happens to be guaranteed by the authority and thereby enforced to be so. If you don't catch why that's ridiculous, you're about to find out. Okay, so that means if the state gives you certain rights, you have them. If the state doesn't give them to you, you don't. Such rights have nothing to do with what is right, correct, or justified, for the sovereign decides what is important and therefore what justice is, but instead have everything to do with power. In fact, it is not an exaggeration to say that civil rights amounts to little more than a description of who is granted what power by the supreme most powerful authority around. Okay, so that's a, it, that is the, what I call like the Foucaultian reduction to power, uh, a way of framing things so that we are no longer talking about what is, right? We're just talking about it, uh, uh, what seems to be able to take advantage in the phenomenological realm. This is that. This is like a, a reduction to subjectivity, so that everything becomes a mere power game. That's what the concept of civil rights is. It is, let's say, am I, let's say, imbued with power by the state to force the world into being the way or other people in the world to being the way that I want. That is civil rights. It is, it's it also, if you're familiar with um, political philosophies, this is also uh, literally fascism. The idea that, so if you're, if you're not familiar really with the idea of fascism is it's a, um, let's say relatively progressive idea back in the days when the uh, conservatives, uh, conservative ideas weren't monarchy, right? It's a progressive idea that, okay, what we're going to do is bring about a good society. We're going to do this through national socialism, so exclusive socialism. And what that means is the nation is like the whole of the being, the state being the head and the mind, and then all the other being organs, right? That's why uh, Rousseau says uh, our corporate capacity as part of a body so there is no separation between, uh, let's say, the people, the culture, uh, and the state. There is no private-public distinction in fascism. It's all a kind of uh, public-private partnership, if we will, right? Uh, if you if you heard some individuals talk about this, uh, but that's what Rousseau is laying out, and that's what produces civil rights, because it is the uh, stripping away of nature and imposing upon nature a man-made structure. You have to understand that, that that's literally what he's getting at. That's why when the state says, well, you should die, you want to die because uh, the state is now the determiner of whether or not you have the right to exist. And the right to exist is, is really just merely whether or not the state decides you do because it's more powerful than you. That's it. That's all this is. So let's finish this up, dispelling the illusion. Civil rights aren't real because civil rights aren't rights. The purpose, the utility of the word right in this context is to describe the concept of rightness, correctness, and justice. It is to describe the standard which determines who is in the right in a dispute. Natural rights fulfill this utility by appealing to an objective standard, that being nature or God, if you like. Natural rights are predicated on that is which is. 
thereby we can determine who is innocent and who is in violation of natural law, in violation of another's property, e.g. his person, right? This is kind of that application of reason. If we are uh, both playing by the same rules, we can negotiate with each other. It doesn't have to reduce to power. It can be refereed by reality, right? Uh, uh, that's, that's the concept of nat natural rights. Civil rights do not serve this function. There is nothing to appeal to. There is only that which is enforced. If a particular state claims it is your civil right to be enslaved, it is so. If not, then it is not so. If a state says you have the right to speak, it means it will stop someone from preventing you from doing so. But if the state does not guarantee your right, then you don't have it, and thereby have no grounds to appeal for it, because it isn't your right. And if the state says you have such a right, but fails to in its duties to guarantee it, then you don't have it nor do you have grounds to claim an injustice, because evidently you didn't have the civil right after all, right? And then this gets to, this bit here, gets to the fact, like, if you're going to go out and campaign for your civil rights, like, on what basis? The only basis you have are to appeal to, appeal to a civil right is on natural rights, right? And you actually can't get to civil rights from natural rights, because to get to civil rights requires the dissolution of natural rights. So just lay that out. So it's a word trick. It's a, it's a power game. It's a misuse of the word rights to emotionally, uh, to evoke emotions in other people, to get them to comply and to get them to um, sit by while the authority, I would say, imposes things upon people in the name of justice. But there is actually no justice because justice just is what is at that point, which means that you don't even need the word. There's no concept. You're so I didn't include it in the essay, but earlier he lays out why like might can't make right because then you don't need the concept of right it's just might it becomes redundant to even ascribe the word right and it just becomes um a cloth and you know throughout writing this essay, i kept wanting to say this is a naked power grab but it's not naked it's cloaked right it's cloaked with the idea of rights and justice and those things don't actually exist in uh in the framework of civil rights because civil rights aren't rights and then therefore, there's no, there's no such thing as just. There just is what is. And that's power. Um, so, yeah, if you are on the side, oh, you know, March for Civil Rights, you've been duped, I'm sorry to say. And probably by well-meaning people who are also duped by uh, the madness of this, uh, you know, 300-year-old philosophy. So, as you can see, civil right doesn't, actually define anything, but whatever happens to be. It is entirely amorphous, contingent upon the circumstances, as is the shape of water to its container. It is a poorly conceived term used to encapsulate contradictory concepts, making it a useless map that leads the users nowhere in particular. Not nowhere, but nowhere in particular, right? So this is why anybody, anywhere, can lay claim to anything as a civil right. That's why I didn't say education is a, is a civil right. Housing is a civil right. Medicine is a civil right. Because there's no limit. It, it, it's not all it is is really saying, I desire this thing and I want power to give me this thing. That's what it means. That's all it means. That's why I can apply to everything all the time. Now, if only the people saying that, if only they realized they have opened the gateway to all those who directly oppose them it is philosophical explosion in the political domain, right? You've now included into the concept of justice, injustice, because if you get to 
say like, well, this is so right. And it's just, really, it's just what you're saying there is I want it. I want it. Right. That's what you're saying. And someone else can say, oh, well, I want the opposite. So you, you've now invited in your contradiction. And with that, it's like one minus one equals zero. You've just destroyed any justice that you thought you were bringing about. Enough. I'm done with this charlatan's trick. Civil rights do not exist. And I hope that I've shown what I mean by that. And I mean that uh, from its very foundings to its use to this day, civil rights are word wizardry, right? They're, it's using the wrong words to evoke emotions in you to get you to think things are justified because you haven't thought them through. That's what civil rights is. And that's all it is. It is the use of, uh, let's say, an authority figure to get what you want. And if you keep pushing, eventually people who want the exact opposite to you will use the same tools and the same rhetoric. And I mean rhetoric when I say that because it's uh, as much as the word rhetoric referred to actual legitimate as well as Ill Ill illegitimate philosophical arguments of the past. Today, when we use the word rhetoric, it essentially means empty rhetoric, right? It's sophistry cleverly arranged and worded lies. You keep using civil rights to just impose what you want via the state. People will use the state or the state will use itself and you to get what it wants. And it'll be in opposition to what you think is just. And there won't be any grounds for you to defend yourself because you will have undone natural rights for the sake of civil rights because civil rights are always in contradiction to natural rights. They exist as, uh, let's say, a sacrifice of natural rights. You don't believe me? Go read these two texts, right? Read Second Treaties of Government, read The Social Contract, and while you're at it, read Rousseau's um, On the Origins of Inequality. You realize that you had no idea what the hell he was talking about. But that's my essay. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was... Uh, it was kind of a blast to write. Uh, I'm going to do a lot more of these, um, you know, tearing apart ideas that people just take for granted. Um, and I hope you I hope you come along the way. Um, hopefully for next week for the podcast, we'll have a, another guest on. We'll see. We'll see. Now, before you go, uh, remember, check out my novel. I'll get the first chapter free on my website, wildislelit.com. Uh, Wand Smoke Broken, right? I've got uh, a spinoff sequel. Uh, that'll be releasing in uh, chunks here soon. So if you get on reading, then you'll have some other stuff to read. Um, and I'm working on the sequel, so that's coming down the pipeline. Uh, let's see. I, also, you can hire me as an editor, right? So wildislit.com, you go to my uh, editing page, you can submit um, a query to me via the contact form. Uh, I'll work out uh, a price with you based on how much material you want to work with. Uh, it's great. I love doing it. I um, So far, I, I've had a blast. It feels really meaningful to help somebody else. I wish that I had had someone like this to help me to teach teach me some things that I didn't know about StoryCraft uh, when I was first learning, I wouldn't have had to spend six years on a novel that I ended up being ashamed of and don't talk about it anymore. Salt, sand, and blood. Uh, it's awful. Uh, I don't even think it's able, available for publication anymore. And if you enjoy this podcast, you're going to enjoy um, the prior ones as well. The 
last two. Um, so I've got incel Vikings and slang word sorcerers. Uh, check those out. They're on the website, wildoutlet.com slash podcast and on YouTube. Uh, all right, guys. Um, you know, let me know if you're on YouTube, let me know what you think in the comments today. Uh, did I do a good job? What could I do better? Um, any critiques for these solo podcasts and make them a little more entertaining because I'm going to have to do them more and more in the future. Let me know. Uh, with that, I hope you have a good one. See you, friends.